Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. It's been six months since stay-at-home orders were first put in place to fight the spread of COVID-19, closing businesses and costing hundreds of thousands of jobs. Today, Miami-Dade and Broward County enter phase two of reopening, joining the rest of the state. But business is not back. Bars are still closed in Miami, curfews are in place, restaurants can only partially open, cruise ships are still not sailing, and travel remains tough. The demand for basic needs remains high. Housing, food, medications. Later on in the program, we will talk with two groups working to help get South Floridians what they need to survive this pandemic economy. And we'll introduce you to three women working through the COVID-19 economic recovery. A banker. We do have requests for new loans. So there is loan demand. A baker. We thought that maybe this uh, 2020 was going to be a little bit more of a, of a national scale in the company. And a bartender. The bills that I currently have are based off of the salary and the money I was I was making before all of this happened. You know, bills don't change, unfortunately. <laughs> it's been a lot of, of hustling, really, just to try to stay afloat. Over the next several months, we will follow our banker, baker, and bartender each week as they navigate this COVID-19 economy. But first, K-12. It's the for-profit online education company that was supposed to be Miami-Dade County Public Schools' answer to virtual learning. The school year got off to a disastrous start. The school district's web portal was the target of internet attacks, and there were problems with K-12 software that teachers and students were supposed to use as their virtual classrooms. On Wednesday, 10 days into the new school year, the Miami-Dade County Public School Board heard hundreds of complaints. I write to the board to express my grave concerns about the K-12 platform for kindergartners. As we have seen, K-12 has not worked well for most stakeholders. Horrible learning experience. Serious audio-video problems. The K-12 online platform is horrible. Here are a list of my concerns. 1. The program is not easy to navigate. 2. The program continues to have three. The teacher tried to create a playlist because if the teacher mutes all, even if the teachers cannot, and six, you can only see. It is our sincere hope that our concerns are addressed and that K-12 is replaced with a more adequate software. And by 3 a.m. Thursday morning, that's what happened. The school district voted to stop using the platform, even though the district had yet to sign the proposed $15 million contract with the company. Nate Davis is the CEO of K-12, and he joins us here on the Sunshine Economy. Thanks for your time today, Nate. Appreciate it. No problem, Tom. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. What went wrong with the software in Miami-Dade County? Well, first of all, I think we need to to remember that this is a vision that was that was talked about for some time, and the task was trying to get it done in, in six weeks. Obviously, in six weeks, it's a very difficult thing to accomplish. We're all struggling in this economy. This, as you put it, the COVID economy, trying to get things done in, in, in impossible time frames. This is something that would normally take six months to do, and we all try to do it in six weeks. What happened in that six weeks is teachers were not trained because we didn't have enough time to train them appropriately. Systems interfaces has to be built into Miami-Dade system, and uh, volumes had to be tested. And all of those things had to be done in a six-week time frame. And candidly, we just didn't get all those things done in a in a better world, we would have taken the four or five months or six months to have done this and got it ready for second semester, but the school district was trying their best to get something in time, in place in time, and that's a very difficult thing to do, and that's primarily what happened. 
A statement from K-12 after the school board ended the relationship last week said that work to customize the platform began six weeks ago before uh, before the school year began, as you mentioned, the timeline. What were those customizations, and, and who requested them? Well, first of all, this is a vision that Superintendent Carvalho and I both shared, and the vision was that we would have a single curriculum that was aligned to Florida State standards, a blended school option that allowed parents and students to, to be online, and then when it's time to go to the classroom to use exactly the same content, that it would be flexible enough to allow teachers to remove, add, and, and delete um, content from the platform so they could teach and customize the teaching to the students they had, and the teachers would be trained on how to do all of this, that it would be a single sign-on for one system to be able to do this. And by the way, we would have all the reporting and progress tracking of students meeting the state standards for accountability and for time in class. And those were the things that had to happen. Primarily, that meant interfacing with Miami-Dade's registrar system, getting all the courses and loaded and you know, knowing which student was in which course and on which teacher was teaching which course, and all of that interfacing that had to be done, as well as producing all of those, those capabilities I just mentioned. So all of that had to be done in, in a six-week time frame. And by the way, on top of all of that, training the teachers in advance so they understood what to do and how to do it prior to that time frame. That just was a lot to do in six weeks. So how, what was the personnel commitment that K-12 made in late July as this contract uh, began to be negotiated and you and your team was understanding some of these tight timelines? Well, we dedicated personnel. We dedicated our, our product development team and our information technology team. We dedicated some uh, subcontractors that we used for various various tools. Um, so all of that was dedicated resources. And we spent those dedicated resources without a contract, as you know. That's right. The, the superintendent we did not sign it. That's right. Nate, yeah, what, we were investing. what gave you the confidence that you could meet those timelines, given your understanding of how tight they were, six weeks, as opposed to what would normally be a six-month build-out? I think ultimately we believed, and we didn't understand, the number of interfaces that had to be done, but we believed we could do that. We've done this. Um, we've done it at smaller scales around the country and other schools. Remember that we serve 170,000 students in our school that we fully support. We have 20,000 students in private schools, hundreds of thousands of students who use our content. We have 2,000 school districts that we're supporting already. We've done this for 20 years. We've had over a million students come through this program. And so for those reasons, we thought we could we could get this done in a, in a shorter than normal time frame. But to be honest with you, the Miami-Dade interfaces were – were more complicated than, than we all understood. And I think that was uh, the downfall, trying to get all of those things tested and teachers trained and show them the capabilities all within that six-week time frame was just too much. How do you respond to the criticism about some of the functionality, that the video function didn't work well, only five screens could be seen at a time, the mute and unmute functions were difficult to use, the real functionality of the software, even in a best-case circumstance? Well, first of all... Um, as you know, with any new system turn up, there are some problems. And so we, have, we absolutely agree that there were some of those problems. They were not there for all students. They were there for some students. Um, we had You say new system, Nate, just so we're clear. You, you were building new software for Miami-Dade or, or customizing existing software? We were primarily customizing existing software, although there was one piece of software that was new. 
And that piece of software that was new was the piece that allowed you to have the visual connection. And uh, we had a subcontractor that was a new piece of software for that. And that software did have some problems. Um, There was no doubt about it. But it worked for most students. It just didn't work for all students. Some did have problems. And by the way, part of that happens because if you're using a kind of software on your computer that's not compatible with that system, which we tried to identify up front, then those problems can occur. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done this, um, you'll be on a computer and it'll say, let me test your computer to make sure that you have all the right software. So if you don't have the right software, it may not work properly. If you have an internet connection issue, it might not work properly. So all of those things were not tested at at people's homes and uh, tested on what kind of computer, what kind of device they had. So they may have had an iPad. It didn't work as well with the software as, as a Chromebook would work with it. So all of those interface issues were there. On top of the many issues, of course, that Miami-Dade itself was facing with right. with, um, with, the, with the denial with of tech. service attacks and the cybersecurity issues that were separate from the difficulty that folks were having with the, with the K-12 uh, software. We're speaking with the K-12 CEO, Nate Davis, here on the Sunshine Economy. Nate, uh, the, the, the kindergarten through fifth grade online lessons are from your company. It's described as proprietary in an annual report. The sixth through senior year in high school lessons are from a third party called Desire to Learn. What role did the Desire to Learn platform play at all in the failure of K-12 to meet the timelines in Miami-Dade? I, I don't want to get into too much technical detail, but I do need to correct the perception you had there. The content, meaning what you're learning, is all K-12, from kindergarten. Right. It's the platform that's, that's right. proprietary. Yes, I don't want to make, that's right. It's the okay. platform. It's not. So the, the technology. Content. The, content is, the, the content is all of ours. But the underlying what's called a learning management system, that is the system that technically allows you to interface with our content. That was from a company called Desire to Learn, who is based out of Canada, who we've used for a number of years. We've probably used them for five or six years. And they have satisfied all of our needs. Um, but they did have some problems, underlying problems with, with the capacity, and it was primarily a capacity issue. The other issue that was there was, as I mentioned earlier, the interface that has to happen between Miami-Dade. Normally what happens in, in any, any school, there's a registrar function. That's the function that says Nate Davis is in this class, um, Tom Hudson is te- teaching that class, mm-hmm. and here are all the students in that class. That's called the registrar function. That registrar function is contained in our system. In this case, we were using Miami-Dade's registrar system and trying to transfer that data in. And that transfer of that data in, in that six-week period, um, with all the data interfaces and differences that were there, caused problems for, for uh, Desire to Learn. And that was a big part of their issue that they faced, was just trying to get all of that data into their system. And uh, that, that caused them to be overloaded. So you mentioned uh, the capacity issues there for Desire to Learn, but yet a longtime uh, vendor and business partner of K-12 did it not anticipate 200,000, 250,000 students given the enrollment in Miami-Dade County as you were preparing for that launch on August 31st? It, it, it's not the number of students. It is the amount of data that has to be transferred. And that amount of data was not anticipated by them. And so that was where the problem came in. And again, I think that uh, that problem occurs because it has to get done in six weeks. By the way, if you worked on that for an entire six weeks, you would be fine. But in light of everything else that had to be done during that six-week time and all the new requirements that kept coming out, not Miami-Dade's fault, by the way. I think Superintendent Carvalho and his staff did a great job. They worked tirelessly, hours and hours, into the evenings, as did we, trying to make sure all these things were there. But each time we discovered that 
something new had to be done for the teachers, something new had to be done to match their system. Each time one of those things occurred, that ate into the six-week time frame. And ultimately, we just all got overwhelmed by the amount of work that had to be done in that six-week time frame. Nate, when you talk about new requirements, what do you mean by that? Were these requirements that uh, the district was coming back to K-12 with or requirements, for instance, that uh, that the teachers were requesting or requiring? It was requirements that associated with how Miami-Dade did its work. For example, let's say you have five, five uh, classes being taught by a teacher, and then you hire a new teacher, and you hire that new teacher a week before school starts, and then that teacher is going to teach two classes. Now you've got to change the enrollment for which teachers are teaching which classes and which students are in those classes. That change comes in at the same time you're loading all the data, so now you've got to change the data again. The interfaces for, for what might be what, how a class is coded. So a class may be coded as geometry one. Well, geometry one may actually be called a different thing inside the K-12 system. Mm. So we had to go and build an interface to translate from that one, one to the other. Each time something, some problem like that was discovered, it required some coding fixes and some changes. Um, those are the things. It wasn't that they were generating new requirements. It's just that we were understanding each other and how each other would operate. And again, most of the time, this is done over a longer period of time. The fact that it had to be done over six weeks caused us not to be able to, to handle all those interfaces. And uh, collectively, we just, we just didn't get that done. And again, I, I want to defend the Miami-Dade uh, School District because I think their vision was right. We just didn't have enough time to get all the work done in that period of time. We're speaking with Nate Davis, the CEO of K-12, an online uh, learning platform. The software was supposed to provide the virtual learning environment for Miami-Dade County Public Schools. The school board uh, terminated uh, conversations with K-12 regarding that service on uh, on early Thursday morning of last week. Nate, uh, the company was making a million-and-a-half-dollar donation to the Foundation for New Education Initiatives. That's a nonprofit that was started by Superintendent Alberto Carvalho. Why make that donation in this business relationship? Because what was happening was clearly the teachers were working massive numbers of hours. They were working on weekends. They were doing the right work to try to support this implementation. And I think Superintendent Carvalho wanted to find a way to, to thank those teachers. And, um, but he doesn't have the money to do that. So I volunteered to do that. I volunteered to help him to say, here, give each of the teachers a $100 certificate for the work that they were doing on the weekend. Um, that's what we did. It was about roughly 10% of what K-12 would have been paid under this contract. Is that a, a normal business practice for K-12 to make that kind of donation? Uh, we've made donations to many school districts and to scholarships. As a matter of fact, we have a uh, Future of School Foundation that we had started, and we gave that foundation. Right, but this was a donation, Nate, to, to a foundation started by essentially a client of K-12, not K-12's own yeah. philanthropy. And, and, as, and as I said, we give, found, we give money to various school districts and to foundations around the country. So, yes, we give money to foundations. You know, we like to give back to the community. And this but but are these foundations that K-12 is doing business with? Ultimately, we don't do business with the foundation. Understood. Right, correct. That's right. In this case, you do not. That's right. The foundation for uh, new education initiatives was not the client of K-12. That is true. Has this donation been made, Nate? Donation has been made. And given that there's no contract, uh, no strings attached, that that money 
you're not going to request any of those funds back? No, we're not. It is a it is a donation, and uh, we still believe it is the right thing for Miami Day to uh, reward those teachers, and we wanted to help them do that. So, no strings attached. The K twelve has done business with Miami schools for more than a decade. Is there current business between the two? Yes, we still operate that the other school, the online school, which, by the way, has um, above average state scores in that school. How would you describe the relationship now with Miami Dade schools and the potential for future? work well i don't know what their decisions are about the future we still believe miami-dade is a good partner and a good team to operate with um i think i got to know superintendent carvalho very well i got to know some of his staff very well they are they are massively interested in their students they want to they want to be over the best tools for their students and i want to work with them in the future i don't think we'll do anything in the next year they've got to get through this year but i still think there's an opportunity for this vision be phased in at some page sometime in the future. Obviously, K-12 has suffered uh, 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 a ding on reputation, certainly when it comes to Miami-Dade, because of the high-profile uh, failures, difficulty with the uh, fulfilling of the, uh, of the online uh, platform. What's your message to parents and to teachers? First of all, Miami-Dade, uh, I, I couldn't go back to what the original vision was. The superintendent and his staff tried to do the right thing for this community. They wanted teachers to have the flexibility to modify content. They wanted a tool that allowed learning to move from home to the classroom without disrupting the student's education, so the same content. And whatever time it was right for them to move into the uh, classroom, they would have been using the same content and the same teacher. They would have face-to-face contact with a teacher. But my answer is I believe that uh, the the vision Miami-Dade had is correct. We would still love to support them. We would invest in that model to help make it work over time. And this was a painful experience for all of us to try to do this this fast, but that shouldn't be a penalty to the the long-term vision. Nate, how does the experience impact efforts to bring classrooms online to to build out the, the virtual education model well i think in miami certainly it will it will cause some people to be um painfully aware of the the migration and how difficult it is and i think it will slow down that migration over time but i still think distance learning and digital learning is a part of what the tools that teachers are going to need in the future our kids are all on cell phones they're on mobile devices they're all doing online games we've got to find a way to motivate our students and give them these tools inside education and not just for entertainment. And so as they have all those tools, we're going to have to learn to use those tools to help them be motivated to learn as well. And so I think that's that's a long-term thing that is going to continue to happen in the education field. It will never replace teachers. Teachers are the center of education. But giving teachers and giving students and giving parents the tools so that when there's a hurricane, they don't get disrupted. When there's a pandemic, they don't get disrupted. When there's anything else going on, if they're sick and they have to learn from home, they'll have that, that capability to do that. Um, I think that's still going to be a part of what we have to do to educate our kids in the future. Nate, uh, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for spending a little bit of it with us here on WLRN. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Have Nate, a great day. You too. Nate Davis is the Chief Executive Officer of Online Learning Platform K-12.
Still to come on the Sunshine Economy, stick with us. The high demand remains for basic needs in our community six months into the pandemic economy. We're seeing housing assistance, food as well as a top, but um, the need is it's so great. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. It's been six months since the first shutdowns and slowdowns were ordered to fight COVID-19. Miami-Dade and Broward County officially joined the rest of the state in phase two of reopening today. But the economy is far from where it was before the pandemic. Tens of thousands of people in South Florida remain unemployed. Stimulus checks have been delivered and most evictions remain on hold. We've got the coming together of a, an extremely serious situation in South Florida. Josie Bacchiao is the CEO of Hispanic Unity of Florida. We see, at least for the next six months, that financial stability uh, mm-hmm. continuing to be the most critical piece of our work. A half year after the pandemic began, and regional social service agencies say demand remains high for basic needs. Christina Blanco is with United Way of Miami-Dade. We're seeing housing assistance. Mm-hmm. food as well as a top, but um, the need is its so great. Her agency is doling out $20 million in federal stimulus money sent through Miami-Dade County. More than 9,000 people applied for the money in less than five days when it began a month ago. About $8 million has been distributed so far. The money is in addition to the $3.5 million United Way of Miami-Dade raised privately. I think $20 million um, and then the, what we raised before, just under $3.8 million, is, is just scratching the surface. Before COVID-19 hit, about half of Miami-Dade and Broward County households were financially on edge, in poverty, or struggling to earn enough money to pay for basic living needs like housing, food, and health care. That's according to United Way's research. And the economic vulnerability is higher for blacks. During the recovery from the Great Recession, the agency found the number of black households failing to be able to afford basic necessities increased, even though the broader economy regained its footing. That recovery ended suddenly six months ago with COVID. So these are families that are walking that edge of that financial cliff where a car repair or a medical bill can have them fall into poverty. So here we are before a pandemic hits, before um, loss of jobs hits, we are dealing with a gap of people. This is before they're even in poverty. They're, They're paying their bills, they're paying their taxes, they're doing all the right things, but they don't qualify for any kind of public services. That uneven economy and the types of businesses that have taken the brunt of the economic consequences of COVID-19 are bringing renewed attention to the kinds of jobs and incomes that are so important to the region. We can't wait for the hospitality service industry to come back. We can help them as much as possible, but we need to find families other opportunities for employment as well. Other areas in the country might recuperate much faster But our economy, the thing that drives our economy is not coming together very quickly. Josie Bacchiao with Hispanic Unity of Florida. Now, still to come, how a banker, baker, and bartender are getting along in this pandemic economy. What a six months we had. There's still so much uncertainty. We used to have like 30 seats at the bar. Now there's 14. 
We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Unemployment statistics, consumer confidence levels, rent, home prices, all are important to gauge how the economy reopens and recovers even while COVID-19 is a public health crisis. But data is different than the individuals facing the uncertainty of this economy and making financial decisions for themselves. So for the next several months, the Sunshine Economy will be talking with the banker, baker, and bartender each week about how they are navigating through this pandemic economy and what their individual experiences can tell us about the overall economic recovery. First up, we hear from our banker. Uh, This is Ginger Martin, president and CEO of American National Bank in Fort Lauderdale. American National Bank is a community bank, which means that we are under $1 billion in assets, and uh, there's not very many community banks left in uh, South Florida, so we're, we're glad to be, you know, one of them. We are a commercial bank and really focus on commercial real estate, both owner-occupied and investment uh, real estate. So we are not so much a consumer bank as far as residential uh, lending or auto or boat or, or things like that. So definitely more of a business bank. Small business is so important as far as the economic engine in the local community. We forget maybe that there's more small businesses than there are the, you know, the, the, the huge ones. And we're very focused on seeing those small businesses, you know, survive and thrive. Of course, I think that some of those businesses have been very, very hard hit during this whole COVID situation. And yet, you know, we also see some of those that are doing you know, very well, which we're very you know, glad to, you know, to hear. In January, I think that we were all so optimistic because all the numbers for Florida as a state and then specifically South Florida were strong. You know, we had people moving in, businesses were growing, people were really saying, hey, 2020 is going to be a, a great year in South Florida. When you figure they started you know, shutting down the businesses, and I think we were all just kind of in, in disbelief: is this is this really uh, you know happening? And I think it took I think it took a little while to kind of sink in that it was happening. And then as it got more intense, and the magnitude and the people who were you know losing you know jobs and paychecks and just all the ramifications from that, and, and then businesses that are saying, hey, we're not even going to reopen again because we, you know, we can't afford it, and then those that tried to reinvent themselves and re-engineer themselves for the environment. So there's really been a lot of things going on when it comes to uh, the small business community. One of the things that we did, as well as a lot of other banks did, is that we did give loan customers that whole option of a 90-day deferral, payment deferral, where they didn't have to make any payments uh, on their loans. So try to just give them some breathing room because of the fact that things were so uncertain and some of them were closed and people were sheltering in place. So therefore, you know, activity wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't happening. People were very appreciative of having that, uh, that break and, and an opportunity to kind of re-engineer themselves and, and plan and shift and pivot, uh, all those words that we've, I think, uh, ha- have heard during this, this last several months. Um, and then we've been very fortunate that the majority of those businesses with that 90-day payment delay have been able to say, hey, you know, we think that now we're ready to be able to start paying, you know, continue pay- making those loan payments. I would say there's still so much uncertainty. 
and the news is kind of mixed. You hear some things that are just really negative. Uh, like we'll take, for instance, uh, you know, the whole hospitality, restaurants, um, that that industry. Um, then, as opposed to, you know, manufacturing uh, service, you know, industries. So, you know, I I think that people are guarded when in in saying, okay, we're trying to do everything that we can to recover, position ourselves for what the future is going to hold, but yet we don't know. Um, and so I think that uncertainty weighs heavy on people even, and, we, and we've seen signs of uh, improvement in certain areas, but then you hear something else that counters that. And so uh, uncertainty is going to be my, my word for right now. One of the things that we as a bank are still waiting for is the whole SBA, you know, the PPP forgiveness process, because, um, you know, we, we, we had 70 some million of, of PPP loans over 500 and number. Um, and of course, that played such a positive role, too, I think, of giving people, small businesses, uh, breathing room. Now they're ready to submit their forgiveness applications and to kind of go ahead and to close that chapter. And SBA hasn't quite been prepared to do that. So each week, we're kind of going, okay, is this going to be the week where we're going to be able to really start this process, you know, with our customers? And right now, we're just going week by week. That's what I'm looking at next week. You know, is it, is it uh, going to be ready to start submitting applications, um, or are they still in this whole pending state? One of the things that we're always faced with is what are interest rates going to you know, be as far as what we're going to pay our depositors and what we're going to charge for um, to borrow money. So even though the rates are static, there's still those requests of, well, can you, you know, can you give me a lower rate on this loan? And so you still have that competition, too, that you're dealing with because, you know, banks are. Uh, vying for business, and so you got to make that decision. Am I willing to give up some rate to get the deal? And so I find that as a constant tension. And you know, and does this loan qualify maybe for a more favorable favorable rate? And here's the other request that we're seeing: is you know, people want longer fixed terms, and, and when you're dealing with commercial loans. It's not like um, residential loans of 15-year or 30-year fix. That's not the way commercial real estate, you know, works. Uh, but people are saying, hey, instead of a five-year repricing, you know, are you willing to go, you know, to to a 10? And uh, so that's some of the decisions that we are are wrestling with. Also, what the rate's going to be and how long is it going to be fixed for? Here's some good news. I got a a pipeline report from my chief lending officer, and we do have request for new loans. So there is loan demand. And so we do see some activity there and some good loan requests. Um, and so that makes me as a banker feel, uh, you know, feel good. Now, also as a banker, though, we're going to have to look a lot more carefully at these deals because of the uncertainty that uh, the future could hold. You know, normally you look at past performance to predict future performance. Well, we can't really look at 2019 and say, hey, yeah, that's what 2020 is going to be like, or even the first part of this 2020, and that's what 2021 is going to be like. So it's a, it's a different world that we're in right now. Ginger Martin, president of American National Bank based in Fort Lauderdale. 
She's the banker we will hear from over the next several months as we follow how she's experiencing the economy. Still to come, the baker, an empanada maker, and how she's working to save her company and jobs. You know, as an entrepreneur, you are always thinking, you know, what is it that I'm not seeing? What are the risks? What are the things that I could anticipate? Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Today we're introducing you to three women we'll be speaking with each week over the next several months to hear how they're getting along as the economy tries to recover from the COVID-19 restrictions and recession. You just heard from Ginger Martin, the banker of our baker, banker, and bartender trio. Now the baker, an empanada maker. I am Pilar Guzman Zavala. I am the CEO of Half Moon Empanadas. We're a fast casual concept of empanadas. January 2020, uh, we had 13 locations open. Uh, We have almost um, 100 employees um, and 11 managers in our staff. We were very aggressive at our plans of scaling the business nationally in airports. You know, we thought that maybe this uh, 2020 was going to be a little bit more of of a national scale in the company. Instead, it's been, you know, after COVID, it's been pausing a little bit that those plans, uh, not quitting on them, but just pausing them and understanding that, you know, it's going to be more slow because airports are slow right now. I think it, it accelerated uh, our plans to do more digital sales. So delivery and ordering online for our kitchen location. And we had thought about that, but we had put plans on the side for that because we were focusing on airports. So I guess COVID brought the urgency for us to focus on that more. Wow. <laughs> what, 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 a, what a six months we had. March hits and in, in a week I have pretty much all of the stores closed. The Miami Beach Convention Center stores become you know, they, they, they get closed because it becomes a hospital. Then the universities are closed. And this within, you know, a week or so. And then the airport locations start going down in sales. Like literally by May, there were no sales. So we had to close the airport locations. You know, as an entrepreneur, you are always thinking, you know, what is it that I'm not seeing? What are the risks? What are the things that I could anticipate? I could never imagine in my life that the airport location will, will be in, in any problems, right? Because, you know, we, we are the best seller uh, per square foot in the airport. So we were doing very well. And so it hits and then you become, you know, you have no sales. I don't like to quit. We were able to kind of uh, to reinvent ourselves because uh, the government, the local government, the county needed vendors to provide meals for seniors. Talking to the different people that I know in the community, um, I said, well, let's present our empanadas as a meal. And so we created a plate with empanadas and fruit. And then they, they said, no, that's not what we need. So we then started to learn about how we become this restaurant making meals for seniors, how you learn about nutrition, how you learn about logistics, because we had to deliver the meals house by house. Um, so we had to rent trucks. Uh, we had to learn about logistics and timing and how you package the meals in a way that they don't spill. 
So we became um, a company making empanadas. We, we still do empanadas for our four stores, but we really are doing meals for seniors these days. Most of the businesses cannot survive, you know, because of, of your, your wrong way and your cash flow it doesn't allow it. I was very concerned about that uh, because we made some investments last year, many, many things in 2019. So my cash flow wasn't that good. But I think we're in this great country, and I think the government help, the PPP, and then the relief loan that the state of Florida had. So I literally was involved in every conversation about what kind of help businesses had, and I applied to all of them, and we were lucky to get them. There was like almost two months where we did not have any sales. So the first month, we need to make a decision. Do we lay off people? until we get the help or do we sustain this and i just thought it, it was the right thing to do you know your team is what makes your company so we decided to continue to have everybody employed there were only two weeks in may where i was very stressed that i lowered the salaries 25 percent. but it was only two weeks because at the second week we got the loans and then i went back to uh, full so the whole month of april i from my pocket i paid full salaries to everybody and then uh, the first two weeks of May, I, I was concerned because I wasn't getting the money from the government. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to sustain. So we did lower it 25% and then we put it back again mid of May. I did not pay myself. I have a long-term view. You know, I want to be able to pass this crisis the next six months, hopefully, and have still a company. And so if you don't have your people, your team, then you won't have a company. So for me, this is a strategy to sustain the business. This coming week is about making sure my process is in the kitchen. That's why I'm here. I'm talking to you from my kitchen. The meals for seniors are decreasing a little bit. And so as they decrease, I had to adjust, you know, hours and people and, and making sure that whatever hours I have allocated, that they're done correctly. So right now I'm focusing a lot in operations. Um, you know, that's my main, my, my main thing. And the second, the second project I have is that I'm relaunching the brand. So I'm doing a whole renovation of the brand. My kitchen has a big mural. If you pass by on 79, you will see a big empanada mural that is now in white. It's painted white. We're redoing the whole mural. You know, we're printing new menus. Uh, the logo is going to be changed. Um, so executing that the right way, that's a priority. So that will be this weekend. And then next weekend, we're doing an outreach of influencers in Miami. My husband, who's, uh, by the way, the one that created the company, he put together a list of 50 local influencers, people that write about food, that, that write about lifestyle. Um, we're we're going to reach out to them. Um, so I hire a, a person for that, a social media marketing person younger, you know, 20 years old, super, super smart. And so she's going to reach out. We're going to send a box of empanadas with a little note from me um, in the hopes that they can either we do a trade or they can just taste the product and post something on their story in the hopes that that would generate, you know, curiosity for people that don't know my brand to come and get empanadas from us or call us for delivery. She's for now a contract hire. The first three months, it will be that, like that, but I just can see her that she's really good, that I would want to have her like full-time employee marketing person in my company in January. That's my, my vision.
it's funny because I do not cook. I'm not passionate about food, <laughs> but I am passionate about my company because of what we create and, and do for others. You know, that's, that's my drive. And so, yeah, I, I am very proud. All of my managers are working still for me. I'm proud, you know, and it's important. You know, we need to be business people that are responsible too. Pilar Guzman Zavala runs Half Moon Empanadas. We will speak with her each week over the next several months to hear how she and her company are doing as the South Florida economy tries to recover. Still to come in our Banker Baker Bartender Trio, the bartender. The bills that I currently have are based off of the salary and the money I was I was making before all of this happened. You know, bills don't change, unfortunately. <laughs> it's been a lot of, of hustling, really, just to try to stay afloat. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. No industry has been hit as hard by the pandemic as the hospitality industry. The travel restrictions, restaurant and bar closings, for the South Florida economy to rebound, hospitality has to help. Now, each week, we'll be talking with three women in different roles in this economy. A banker who concentrates on small businesses, a co-owner of a small company that makes empanadas, and a bartender, someone on the front lines of this pandemic economy. My name is Keisha Scott. Um, I live in the Boynton Beach area. I am a uh, bartender server um, at a local Italian restaurant. Been doing it for 20 years, um, trying to hang in there with all of the uh, COVID restrictions and, and, you know, keeping my fingers crossed that things just get a little bit busier as the phase progresses. January and February were just normal months. Um, at the time, I was um, a training and um, hiring manager for another um, company in West Palm Beach. You know, everything was just going as usual, always on a wait, busy, busy, busy. And then March 20th was when um, myself and my management team got furloughed. So it wasn't as scary because, you know, we still had income coming in. And then on Cinco de Mayo, I was actually officially laid off. So I kind of just took that time to do some personal development. I've always been a huge reader, but just never had time to. So it was nice to be able to just do that. Um, and then I have always had this passion for health and fitness. And when the pandemic first hit and the, everybody was furloughed and the stay at home started, there was a lot of free classes being offered online um, from a lot of major universities and, and things like that. So I kind of take advantage of some of those because I had the free time. And, and then I just, I don't know, I just woke up one day and I, and I was like, you know what, I really should just start getting certified in, in wellness. And, and I, I, as a training manager and being a trainer in the hospitality business, I've always considered myself somewhat of a life coach. <laughs> so I kind of decided to just start looking into what that path could look like because Obviously, the hospitality business is not going to be the same. It's not the same <laughs> at all. I just started to go into that lane. So I got a certification as a nutrition coach. And I will actually be taking my um, official exam next Thursday. Not this coming Thursday, but next Thursday for my personal trainer certification. I'm trying to kind of create another path 
as much as I love being in the hospitality business, um, it's just, I, I just don't see it being what we all, you know, what we all miss. <laughs> Around June is when I started to try to put my resume back out there and didn't realize how difficult it was going to be because I've never had an issue getting a job. That was a little difficult because I just, I felt like I just could not get my foot in the door anywhere. It didn't matter where it was, almost, almost as if maybe I had too much experience <laughs> for them to be able to bring me on um, with, you know, the 25% capacity. That was also something I'm sure it was, was kind of also getting in the way of, you know, me being able to get hired on somewhere. Um, a lot of places still haven't even brought on their full staff yet. So I was lucky. I was really lucky to be able to pull this job and just in the nick of time as unemployment was running out. I applied for this position about a month before they actually called me. Um, and they called and asked if I could come in that day for an interview. Um, obviously, I wasn't doing anything. So I said, sure, <laughs> and sat down and talked to one of the managers for 10 minutes. And he was like, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow. And he said, great, see you then. And that's pretty much what, you know, how, how that happened. I get two days off a week, but I've scheduled doubles. It's a little different because, you know, pre-pandemic, as a bartender, you get used to a certain amount of income, you know, because you've got all the seats at the bar. We used to have like 30 seats at the bar. Now there's 14. So that cuts the income. You almost have to work doubles in order to get the money that you're used to having because the bills that I currently have are based off of the salary and the money I was, I was making before all of this happened, you know, bills don't change, unfortunately. <laughs> it's been a lot of, of hustling really just to try to stay afloat. Trying to tell people your name through a mask is, <laughs> is, is fun, especially when, you know, the clientele might be a little, a little older and then there's outside noise and music and a fan and, you know, people talking. So it's like, you can't, I want to pull my mask up just a little so they can hear me, but I can't because, you know, somebody might think, oh, God, they moved their mask and it can create this whole nother situation. And it gets, it's gotten to the point now where I work and I honestly just don't even realize I have it on anymore. But by the time I take it off when I get in the car, like my face just feels like, oh, God, thank you. That's the other thing. I feel like my smile is my moneymaker. So I'm having to really work on the, the eye contact. Last week was all bar. This week I'm doing both bar and serving. It's a pretty light schedule. And honestly, even though I'm not scheduled a double, I'll probably try to pick up one. <laughs> Let me take the cash home in hand. The day that you work, all of my income is through those tips. I'm not used to getting a paycheck when it comes to service industry. The one thing that's nice about this place is that they've actually like, they've upped the pay rate for the bartenders. So like if you work in the morning, they give you a higher hourly rate. So I actually end up getting a paycheck that's got at least a couple hundred dollars on it. So that's a nice little extra incentive to look forward to on the every other Friday. And this Friday is one of those paycheck Fridays for bartender Keisha Scott in Boynton Beach. She's the bartender of the Banker Baker Bartender Trio of Women we'll be speaking with each week about what they're experiencing as the economy reopens and works to recover from COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at WLRN. Also look for a podcast of this program by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast app. And don't forget to tell your smart speaker to play WLRN.
Peter Meritz is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.